So I think about um, this is 2018, but I'm going to be 58 this year. So life is great at 58. That's my new slogan. But I, I, I really feel that God wants to break through and do something amazing this year. There are promises in my life, and I don't know about yours, that are still pending. Do you have promises that are still pending? You have those that have been fulfilled, those that are being fulfilled, and those that have yet to be fulfilled. But perhaps you have a particular promise that has an impediment to it. There's something that is standing in the way. And maybe you're saying, Lord, I know this is what your word says. I feel that you have promised me this. This is what has been confirmed by others. But I just don't see how this can be fulfilled. I just don't see it. Because this stands in the way. Or that stands in the way. And and you feel that God's given it to you. You've been holding on to it, maybe for some time. Maybe you've even written your name next to it or put a date to it. Or you've prayed it and prayed it and prayed it. But there's an impediment. That impediment could be some type of obstruction, an obstacle, maybe a legal sanction or a disablement. It's the wall that stands between you and the promise of God. It's that object that threatens your claim to God's promise. And it can come in a varied uh, form. It can be a lack of finances. Like, Lord, I don't see how you're going to do that. We have no money. We have no resources. It can be a lack of energy. Seriously, for those of us over 50, we understand what that means. Where, I mean, sometimes I look at my grandchildren, I'm like, wow, that's energy. I want to, I want to interact with them, but I'd have to chase them down. Or it's a lack of strength. We just don't feel strong enough. A lack of time. Um, There are people who are standing in the way. It's a place that we're not at or we need to get to, and we don't see how we can get to that place. It's a lack of power or influence on, on our behalf. It could be a law, but it's a seeming impossibility. But I have found that God loves to deal with impediments. And sometimes I have found that he even points it out to me, like, see that impediment? You're like, yeah. He's like, yeah, I'm going to bring it down. But God is the one who shows him to us. In this way, we have a greater awareness of his promise. We study his promise just a little harder. Because we're like, wait, 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 I got to look at this again. Because how is this going to be fulfilled? I mean, think about the places of impediments. Think about Zechariah. When the angel shows up to Zechariah in the temple, he says, Zechariah, you're going to have a child. Zechariah is like, let me tell you the impediments to that, okay? I'm old, my wife is old, and that's good enough. It's not going to happen. Or when the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a baby. She says, wait, here's an impediment. It's a big one. I'm a virgin. And I've never been with a man. God loves to deal with impediments. As Jesus said, what is impossible for man is possible with God. And it makes us look harder at his promise, even rehearse his promise. It makes us look to his power because we know it's not in us. The possibilities are not there. The plausibility is not there. It makes us look to his instruction. How are we going to do this? How is this going to happen? And it makes us look to his work, not our own. Life is filled with both promises and impediments to believers. We have both. We have the promises of God, but we have impediment after impediment, after impediment. However, we can look back on our lives and see how God has dealt with the past impediments. Again, I think about the tomb of Jesus. And I think about those women that rose up early on Sunday morning. And all they wanted was Jesus. But there were three impediments to Jesus. 
There was a big one, death. Death was keeping them from Jesus. Jesus was dead. They were alive. Secondly, there was a huge stone that barred the entrance to the tomb. And the women were concerned, how will we roll it away? And there was a third impediment, which was a legal impediment. It was the Roman guards and the seal of Caesar. And as they were going to the tomb, they were conscious of the impediments. But when they got there, they found that God had dealt with every single impediment before they even arrived. One, Jesus was alive. That's big. Two, the stone was rolled away. Three, the Roman guards had gotten really scared and run away. God had dealt with every impediment. He has given us so many promises. Our lives are living miracles of what he has already done for us. Many of the promises that you have in your possession, that you have claimed, were once barred by impediments. But God removed those impediments. And you're thinking, wow, I am living in the thing that at one point seemed impossible. I'm living it. And it's just so natural now. Others, or maybe you, still have seeming impossibilities in your life. God has a particular way. He wants to deal with the impediments in our life. He has a plan to remove them. He has unique instructions for us to follow. And he desires to work in us, through us, and with us to remove these impediments. In fact, God wants you to receive, inherit, and live in the promises even more than you want to receive and live in it. He wants to fulfill his word to you and show you how good he is. And he wants you to know the veracity, the validity, and victory of his word. God's ways are the best ways. They prepare us for his work. They remove intimidation from us. You see, as God takes down one impediment after another, we are no longer hindered by impediments. We're no longer like, oh, no, there's an impediment. Let's give it up. We're like, there's an impediment. Let's see what God's going to do. Let's get together. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. It's no longer the threat. It's no longer the end of the story as you once saw it to be. You see it only as something that God is about to deal with. It preserves us from presumption. We don't go and attack it. I mean, I can't tell you the times that people said, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? When you said, I'm praying, they're like, is that it? Is that really all you're doing? And you're like, yes, because prayer moves things. Prayer works. And for me to go out and attack the thing is counterproductive. It's going to have the opposite effect that I want, that I desire. But when God removes the impediment, it preserves us from presumption by keeping us dependent on his instruction, his timing, and his work. In Joshua 6, we learn four specific steps to removing the impediments from the promises of God. Step number one, follow God's word. Follow God's word, God's instructions. God's word gives us specific instructions for how to live life and remove particular and specific impediments. Secondly, pray. Prayer. Be still. Thirdly, be persistent. Persistent in obedience to God's word and persistence in prayer. And fourthly, 
sanctify yourself to God. In other words, dedicate your work and what happens through you to the glory of God. Now, as we come to Joshua chapter 6, we see that Joshua and the Israelites had a huge impediment to the promises of God. They're so close. They're actually in the promised land, but they haven't been able to lay claim to settle into it, to begin to live there on a daily basis. And yet, as they would look back on their history, they could see that God had already dealt with so many impediments. God had dealt with the slavery in their life, their addiction to the Egyptians. They are oppression because that slavery had been an impediment to claiming the promises of God. God had already dealt with the hardened heart of Pharaoh. And that hardened heart had been an impediment to the emancipation of Israel and the claim to the promises of God. He had already dealt with the army of Pharaoh. He had dealt with the Red Sea. He had dealt with the wilderness. He had dealt with the lack of water and the lack of food. He had dealt with the Amalekites that attacked them. He had dealt with the hostility of the Edomites, Moabites, and Amorites who were determined to keep Israel from the promised land of God. He dealt with the giants, Bashan and Og, who had intimidated 10 of the spies that had gone into the land. Those giants that kept the 10 spies from wanting to go into the promised land, God had already dealt with. And he dealt with the Jordan River so that the people were able to cross. God had worked in each of these seeming impediments to bring Israel that much closer to the promised land. Now, as Joshua looks over at the entrance way to Israel, the territory of promise, he sees this walled city of Jericho. It is the first walled city that the children of Israel have come to. It seems impenetrable. It is said by archaeologists that the wall was 15 feet thick. It was double layered and it was 30 feet high. It is completely enclosed. It is shut up. There is no vulnerability that can be seen. And it is absolutely intimidating, downright scary. But it must be dealt with if the Israelites are going to go in and take possession of the land. However, they can't simply attack it, go at it. You can't go up and just kick it. Not, you're just going to hit your foot, hurt your foot if you try to kick it. There's the possibility of defeat. Worse yet, there's a possibility of presumption. Like, I'm not waiting around. I'm going to take it down. And then getting hurt and accomplishing nothing. As Joshua prepared to take the city, he receives confirmation, as you remember in earlier chapters. There are the two spies who went into Jericho and met Rahab, and they learned the disposition of the people who were in Jericho, that they were not aggressive, they were scared. They were threatened. They were intimidated. Secondly, Joshua has an encounter with the commander of the Lord's army. He looks like a warrior and he has a drawn sword. And he has come to take charge of the armies of Israel. I think for Joshua, that must have been such a relief. Great. It's not up to me. I'm under the order of God. He's come. He sent his commander. I am going forth with God. Because we know that Joshua fell on his face when he heard this word. 
and he worshiped the Lord and he asked for God's instruction. Now, as we come to chapter six, the Lord speaks and he says to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. God is saying it's a done deal. It's already happened. It is sure. It is certain. God was allowing Joshua to see as he saw. There was a conflict between what things look like and the reality of what it really was. It looked impenetrable. It looked unconquerable. But the reality was it was about to fall, completely fall and be obliterated. By sight, Jericho was tightly shut up. By promise, it was already defeated. And what was greater, the sight or the promise? What was great, the promise, greater the promise or the impediment? The assurance is under the condition of the following instructions. You see, there is no assurance of promise fulfillment if we go rogue and are disobedient. If we go maverick and independent and I'm tired of waiting on God, we have no promise left because all the promises are conditioned on our obedience and our covenant with God through Christ. God moves us to obedience. He gives us his instructions because he wants to give us all the promises. He alone knows how to fulfill these promises to us. He alone knows what is necessary to bring the impediments down that we might receive the promises. I think about Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 13. And there, the disciples come to Jesus and they said, where would you like us to celebrate the Sabbath with you? And Jesus gives them these very specific instructions. He says, one, enter Jerusalem. Go into Jerusalem. Secondly, look for a man carrying a water pot because that was unusual. Then he says, follow him, observe the house he enters, ask for the master of that house, ask the master to show you the room, and then prepare it. And in Luke twenty-two thirteen, we're told, so they went and found it just as he said to them. You see, we will never find it just as he said if we Refuse to follow his directives. His directives, his instruction, his word is necessary and vital to bringing down the impediments to receiving the promise, the promise which is his word. We will only find it just as he says when we walk in obedience. The instructions, here's his word to them. Here it is, and here is, here is our lesson. It would seem that the commander spoke these instructions to Joshua about the strategy. The armies of Israel were to go forward in rank with the Ark of the Covenant. Seven priests, each with a horn, were to accompany the Ark and blow their ram's horns interspersedly, if that's a word, just pretend it is. The army was to march around the city every day, once around for six days, and then return to the camp. However, on the seventh day, the army with the ark is to march around the city seven times. Imagine how exhausting that would be. Every day, I believe God is draining their strength, that they might know his strength. Then after the seventh circuit, on the seventh day, the priests would make a loud blast of the trumpet and all the people were to shout. And I wonder if this included the people in the camp 
the women and the children in Gilgal, if they were to hear the men shouting and they were to join that shout, knowing that victory was inevitable. God promised that after this shout, on the seventh day after the seventh circuit, that the walls of Jericho would fall down flat. Next, there is prayer. There is one more proviso to these instructions, and that is prayer. During the march, there is not to be a word uttered. While we were in the leaders meeting, somebody said, do you think the women went? And somebody else said, no, because there was not supposed to be a word uttered. And I told that to Brian, and Brian said, it's a good thing a woman said that. (laughs) The only sound would be the stomping on the ground of those who are marching and the priest horns. To those inside Jericho, it must have sounded like a stampede of elephants. They were not to shout. They were not to make any noise with their mouth or say a word from their mouth. No whispering even. What a challenge this would be. My daughter was um, taking her exam to be an esthetician, and she asked me to be her model. And she said, but one thing, Mom, you may not speak. You can't talk to me. You can't say anything to me. And I was like, oh, honey, are you sure I'm the right person? And I really had to pray for the gift of restraint and not talking, especially because she had to do these false eyelashes on me. It was the only time I got to wear false eyelashes in my life. But she put one on that was just one string, another that were each individual. And as she was doing the individual ones, this one popped up. And, you know, as a mom, I wanted to go, honey, you better fix it. We want to pass this. But I wasn't allowed to talk. And I was like, and I wanted to go, but I wasn't allowed to make a sound. And I'm just there. So in my heart, I'm just praying, oh, God, let her see the eyelash. Let her see the eyelash. And my oldest daughter, she's got Brian's temperament, so she's very calm. And she's just doing it. She looks at me, and she's like, because I'm trying to do it with my eyes. And she looks at me, and she's like, like, I know, Mother, peace, be still. Know that he's God, he's over me, I'm all right, you're all right, just stay quiet. I think she was probably praying for me, got her off worrying about the exam. But what do you do when you are forced to be quiet and the situation is intense, intimidating, unknown? You pray. That is the gift that we have. We don't have to pray out loud. We can pray in our hearts. We can pray in our minds. And it often takes those situations of forced silence to cause us to really pray. I am sure as they marched, they reminded themselves of God's promise because they were unable to talk to anyone but God. Prayer is another factor in leveling the impediments that stand in the way of the promises. In Luke 18, 1, Jesus taught his disciples that men ought always to pray and not to faint. But that word ought always, it means they they need to keep praying, be persistent in prayer, which brings us to persistence. They were to continue to do what they had done the same way for six days. Now, can you imagine that? Let's, let's just do this real quick. Day one, they assembled for the first time together and had to go silent as Joshua arranged all of them in the right place. And then they put the Ark of the Covenant in the midst of them, flanked by the men of war on the front and on the back. And then they began to march out of the camp of Gilgal and towards Jericho. And they marched around it the entire way without a word, being quiet and the priest blowing the trumpets. And as they marched, there was no change. No change. No stone loosed. The ground did not shake. There was no surrender, no white flag, and no shingle. 
fell from the wall. Nothing. No change. You know, sometimes we pray, we look around, we say, there's no difference here. I remember one time driving with my son, Char, who used to go by Charlo, and now goes by Charles. He's always changing his identity. But he put his hand out while we were driving on the freeway and said, Mom, I don't know if God answers prayer. And I said, why? He said, because I put my hand out the window, told him to stop the wind, and I'm still feeling it. Yes, that's the type of child he was. And, you know, I gave him a great big lecture about how God's not our genie. But how that we're here to serve God, not God, to serve us. And I went on. But I thought about that. You know, just like we pray once and we think, oh, God didn't work. I guess it's up to me. So there they are. They do exactly what God says. And there's no change. Day two. Again, they assemble at Gilgal in the same order. They march out in silence. The ark is in their midst. The priests blow their horns. They make a circuit around Jericho. There is no change. This is day two. There is no difference that can be detected. There is no visible encouragement. There is no sign that things are going to change. Nothing. It looks like those walls are as strong as they ever have been. Day three, they again gather in formation. They march, march out from the camp. The priests bear the Ark of the Covenant. The seven priests blow the horns. It is act exactly, exactly the same way. Same thing as it was on day one and day two. Still no change. Still no visible difference. Not even a slight give in Jericho. Now here it's day four. By this time, they know where to stand. They knew who they're marching with. They know how to get in rank. They know what to do. They are sure of their position. They can almost do the march blindfolded. It's the fourth day of silence and marching and moving and looking. And there's no change. And they return to camp. And it seems like things are just as they were before. Day five. Day five. The men of war gather again. They line up. They take their place. They begin the march out of the camp. I hope it's sounding redundant to you. Because it must have sounded redundant to them. And they again encircle Jericho. And there is no change. And they return. Everything is done just as it was on day one, two, three, four, and now five. And they look back on Jericho, and it's as shut up, it's as tall, it's as great and strong as it ever was. Day six. No doubt on this day, one of the reasons for silence is obvious. Because if they're not silent, they might say, here we go again. Here we go again. I don't see anything. You see anything? I don't see anything. It's just the same. Still no difference. They're doing everything God said, but there's no visible encouragement at all. Nothing says this is going to change. No movement at all in the enemy camp. Not even the gates are pried open. It would seem that nothing that they've done so far has made any difference at all. Nothing. They've been obedient and obedient and obedient. They've stayed quiet and quiet and quiet. And no change. No change at all. Day seven. They have the promise that this day will be different. But it begins the exact same way. Again, getting in their formation. Marching out from the camp of Gilgal with the ark flanked on both sides by the men of war, walking around Jericho, priests sounding the horns, everyone being quiet, and they go once around, still nothing. They march a second time, returning to their initial point, nothing. Above them is still the tall, impenetrable, Stone upon stone edifice. A third time, nothing. 
a fourth time, nothing. Is this really effective? Is anything really changing? A fifth time, still they keep formation, still they march. It is getting a bit monotonous. Perhaps this is the beginning. Or maybe this reminds you of your prayer life. Perhaps you say, Lord, I have been faithfully doing what you ask. I see absolutely no change in this impediment. I have been doing it. Maybe for you, it's not day after day. Maybe it's week after week. Maybe it's month after month. Maybe it's year after year. And you're not seeing anything. And perhaps the Lord said something to you like, see, this promise is yours. And you get really excited when he gives it to you. And you, as I said, you write your name next to it. And you're like, yes. Did you see the promise God gave me? And then here's this impediment that just seems to come down like a wall blocking you from it. And you're praying and you're being obedient. And there's no change at all. You keep marching to the Lord's instructions, you keep praying, and you are not seeing any visible change. Sixth time around, absolutely nothing. No stone is loosed, the ground does not shake. And now the seventh time, they march around the entire city. They are tired, they are waiting, but it's not until they complete the seventh circuit And suddenly they're all in place around the city. And Joshua says to the priest, sound the horns. And the horns sound a long blast. And then Joshua says, shout, for the city is ours. The priests take a deep breath. And all together, they give one long blast on the trumpet. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Then Joshua and all the men shout loudly. And suddenly, suddenly, without any prior indication, the walls fall down flat. I love this word, nafal, nafal. It's a Hebrew word, nafal, and it means to fall down flat. Years ago, Brian and I were were flying back home from England, and we got bumped up. Is there anything as wonderful as being bumped up? I mean, it was great. But I remember we're standing in this line, and Brian and I had, we kind of sometimes go different lines to see which line will win. And we were both at the same place in two different lines. And the woman takes my ticket. She begins to tear it up. And I looked at her like, what, what are you doing? I want to get on this flight. You know, have I been disqualified? And she looks at me because she sees my dismay. And she goes, it's your lucky day. And I'm looking at her like, it is? And how is that? And she's like, you know, you're, you're, you get to lay down flat. I'm like, it's my de- lucky day because I'm going flat? What is flat? You know, I think it's some English term I haven't heard before. And I'm like, flat? What is flat? And I'm looking at Brian. Brian's like giving me the thumbs up because they're tearing up his ticket. And I looked at her and I flat. She goes, yes, you know. We're bumping you up to... Um, it was like one above. It's like um, business class. She goes, we're bumping you up to business class where the seats go down flat. I'm like, the seats go down flat? I'm so excited I get a flat seat. But when I read this, I think about how the walls fell down flat. Nafal. They went down flat. They didn't fall on the people of Israel. They didn't fall out. They fell down flat. They sunk and tumbled and imploded. The protection of Jericho was gone. The impediment was absolutely 100% gone. And nothing was keeping Israel from victory. But the battle is not over. It has not even commenced. What we have is only the impediment to victory being gone. But there's one more key. 
And that key is sanctification. You see, sanctification is necessary for victory. Some people follow God's word in the big picture. The big picture. You know, they read their Bible. They fellowship. And once they pray for something or that thing that they prayed for happens, they go right back to their old life, to their old ways. There's no sense of sanctification or of dedicating themselves to the Lord, of what Shannon was talking about, of a full surrender. It's like, thank you, God, for what you've done. Now I'm going to take it myself, and I'll take it from here. And they tend to go out on their own. And they never experience a thorough victory. The wall might be down, but the enemy is still in charge. And there is that need for sanctification. Joshua commands that this victory be totally given to God, that the people recognize the spirituality of the conquest. Joshua commanded that as they deal with these people, they are not to take any of the spoils, not the sheep, not the goats, not the food, not the people as slaves. Everything is to be destroyed. Now, just as a side note, because we're such politically correct people these days, let me just say this. We weren't there. We didn't know these people in Jericho. And this is a battle. This is, this is, this is not warfare like we're dealing with. These are not civilized people. And God works uniquely and differently with each culture. And we don't know the conditions or the reasons because he has not called us to this battle. Our battles are different than their battles. And we battle with different weapons and by different means. Our instructions are different than their instructions. It was God's call specifically to Israel. And it was between Israel, Jericho, and God. Joshua says that the things in Jericho are accursed by God. And so they are to be banned to Israel. You see, there are certain things as Christians in our sanctification that certain things we are not to do. They are banned from us because to take of that thing would disgrace us. It would defile us. It would bring harm to our family and our friends and those that are close to us. And it will bring a curse, a defilement to the whole body of Christ. I think of Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, Beware lest a root of bitterness come in you. And it springs up and it defiles others. You see, bitterness is banned to us as Christians. Part of our sanctification is to get rid of bitterness because that will only defile us, defile those around us, and bring defilement to the church. Because bitter people like to talk and spread their bitterness. Misery loves company. So he says, this is banned to you. It will curse the whole camp of Israel and trouble it. It can impair, prevent Israel from the promise, from all the promise, the fullness of the promise that God has. Any silver, gold, vessels of bronze and iron are to be consecrated to God and brought into his treasury. You see, this is the first fruits it is, it is a thankfulness and it is an act of faith to say, we're going to give this all to you, God, because you will provide for us. You will give us other victories, greater victories. So all of this is yours. It is to be given to the treasury of God's tabernacle. Joshua further instructs the spies who went into Jericho in the first place to go and save Rahab and all who are in her house. Well, everything else in Jericho must be obliterated. This woman of faith with her family and her possessions are to be spared. 
And it's because of her faith, which was seen by her hiding the spies, and because of the red cord that has been hung outside her window. Now, it's interesting. We were talking in group about how Rahab's portion of the wall is the only wall that part that didn't fall. The rest falls down flat. And I wonder if as soon as she and her family got out, if that also fell down flat. I, I've been watching um, the happenings in Santa Barbara. I'm sure you have too in Montecito. I went to college in Montecito. So for me, it strikes really close to my heart. I have relatives who live in Montecito. They're in their 90s. And as I was watching this, and these people um, who've had their houses just ripped out from under them, uh, you know, these things that seem so substantial and these huge boulders that have come and just decimated um, houses and property. And we think about, you know, the power of uh, the boulders and these things coming down. And here is Rahab in her house with the walls falling down on each side. But her house strong stands long enough for the spies to get her out. She and her family are outside the camp of Israel, but only for a time, because she marries one of the leaders in the tribe of Judah. He's kind of a fishy guy named Salmon. I've always wondered if he was one of the spies, if this could be like a romantic movie. Like, when I saw your face, you know, it was like, I just knew, like, wow, and you've got faith, and I've got faith. You know, I, I don't know, maybe it was a story like Brian and mine as we met at the home Bible study. I'm just wondering. You're allowed to use your imagination. I love that. But I think of the difference between Rahab. Rahab was spared, and she was ready to leave Jericho completely. She was ready to see it destroyed and everything. She didn't want any more to do with Jericho. She wanted to be fully associated with the people of faith in God, and she was ready to leave Jericho behind. And yet, Joshua had to give a prohibition to those who were in the covenant not to take a cursed thing. And, and I think, you know, so many times, First-generation Christians, they're like, I don't want any more of the world. Just give me Jesus. I've had it with the world. I've been there. It was horrid. It left me so disappointed. But second-generation Christians are going around going, you don't want that? Could I have that? Could I listen to that? Could I do that? And they're picking up of the accursed things. Or they're tempted by the accursed things. The things that brought the first generation Christians into bondage and made them cry out to God. And so excited about the covenant. You know, we need to pray for these second and third generation Christians. That they will have an experience with Jesus that is so real and so authentic. That they won't want the accursed thing. That the promises of God would be so beautiful, so strong, so good that they could see the beauty, the glory, the romance of God's story. That they won't want of the accursed things. Rahab would be brought in completely to the camp of Israel. She would marry Salmon. She would become the mother of Boaz, who married Ruth, the Moabitess, who was the mother of Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Talk about coming into Israel. She didn't just come in. She wasn't just accepted, but she was brought into the very lineage of the Messiah by her faith. Then Joshua places a curse on Jericho because Jericho was meant to be a continual reminder of what God would do to the impediments to the promise if the people of Israel would just follow his instructions, live according to his word, pray, be persistent, continue in his word and in prayer seeking him.
and sanctify themselves to his purposes. In verse 26, we're told, Then Joshua charged them at the time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds the city Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Later, we're told in 1 Kings 16.34, this prophecy was fulfilled when the evil king Ahab, who introduced Baal worship to the nation of Israel, when he was reigning, there was a man named Hiel who either was ignorant of the promises, of, uh, the warning of God, or maybe was a ball worship and didn't care about the worship of God. And he went out and decided to rebuild Jericho. But somebody remembered the promise and the word of God. Jericho was a prime location because it had a natural spring that is actually a tributary to the River Jordan. But when Hael ignored the warning of God, it cost him the life of his firstborn, Abiram. And when he hung the gates, his youngest son, Segub, died. Joshua 6 ends with this important contrast between those who follow God's word and obey his commands and those who don't. Heil ignored the commandment of the Lord and it cost him his family. The men with Joshua obeyed and the walls came down and they had victory. We see how God keeps his promises. His promise to Joshua the impediment of disrespect was gone. To the people, the impediment of Jericho was done with. To Rahab, the impediment of nationality was dealt with. We see how God brings the impediments to his promises down. What is that impediment, that thing that stands between you and God's promise, see, God says, I have given this promise into your hand. But to fully receive it, we must follow his word. There can be no further revelation or instruction until you follow the ones that you already have. Secondly, we need to pray and continue in prayer and continue in prayer. And this is where the persistence comes in. First Thessalonians 5.17 literally says, pray without cessation or resignation. Pray without stopping. How long do we pray? Until. Until the impediment is no more. Until it's down and you look at that place where it once was and you find an empty stone field, a pile of rubbish. You pray until that impediment is gone. Persist. Keep obeying. Keep praying. Keep following his instruction until the promise is completely yours. Imagine what would have happened if the Israelites had been frustrated after day five. I've done this for five days. I'm done. My feet hurt. I'm not going out there again. Day six or day seven. What if they'd stopped it the fourth time around because they didn't see it? What if they hadn't persisted? Pray until the walls fall down. Pray until you receive that promise and then sanctify your labor. And the reward to God. Lord, these are your hands. This is your mind. This is your feet, your body. You do what you want. I give this to you. I want to see you glorified by the fruit that comes from this. Romans 6.13, Paul says, but present yourselves to God. This is what sanctification is. Presenting ourselves to God is being alive from the dead and are members of instruments of righteousness to God. 
Lord, how can my hands serve you? How can my eyes serve you? How can my mouth serve you? How can my ears serve you? How can my feet serve you? What can I do to serve you? God wants to bring you into all his promises, and he has a plan to deal with all the impediments. Don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated. God has a plan. God always has a plan. Do not be presumptuous. Don't go start kicking that wall. Don't yell at that wall. Don't scream at that wall. Don't take the weapons of human warfare. Don't shoot the wall. Don't be presumptuous. It is an impossibility without the word of God, without the promise of God, without prayer and without persistence, it will remain an impediment. But when we bring the word of God, when we bring prayer, when we bring persistence and sanctification, which brings the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a done deal. The wall, the impediment, will fall down. So what do we need? We need to know his word, to know his instructions, to pray, to continue in it, and to give ourselves fully over to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I know that in here right now, everyone has some impediment. Lord, there's something standing in the way. And Lord, perhaps we thought by now that impediment would be done with, it would be over, that it would be leveled, that we would absolutely be walking in the promise, that we'd be living in it, that we'd be claiming it, that we'd be eating of it. But Lord, there's that impediment. But Lord, you've already done so much for us. Your word has proven true over and over again. Right now, as your eyes are closed, and that impediment comes to mind, will you give that wall, that impediment, that obstacle to God's promise? Right now, lift up your arms and present it to God. And just lift it up. I got my eyes closed. I'm not seeing you. You're not seeing me. Let's give that impediment to God. Lord, we recognize that only you can remove the impediment. Only you can deal with the walls. Lord, only you can deal with a hardened heart. Only you can deal with sanctions. Only you can deal with a lack of resources or a lack of time. Lord, only you can deal with these things. But God, you do. You do. And you will work it in us and through us and with us. Lord, we give you our impediments today. Because, Lord, we want your promises, and we want to walk in your promises. We want to live in your promises. We want to herald and speak about your promises and the goodness of your promises. So, Lord, according to your word, let it be done unto us, your handmaidens. We give you all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.